It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and it says this. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Oh, man, where did that come from? What a dream. Dreams are so strange. Ah, it must have come from the presidential debate, the Republican debate. They were, talk, they were sparring about Social Security. And it was Cain going after Romney and how it's failed. And that's where it came from. But why me? Oh, my word. Okay. Here's the dream, but realize don't hold me accountable for any of the content because it's a dream. Um, it's this retirement plan a bizarre retirement plan where everyone is required to retire, like it or not, at age 65 on their birthday. And they all retire to the same place up there on the hill. It's uh, that place, Paradise Heights. They all retire up there on their 65th birthday. And in the dream, there were two men, Bill and Wally, and boy, there couldn't be a greater contrast in two men. But the weird thing about this thing is it wasn't the common type of retirement. What they did is you have this house, and you would appraise the house in its current value, and whatever that house is worth, you would just trade in that value for the value of the place you'd get up there in retirement. And it was just an exchange. But... They didn't use the county appraisers, you know, the ones that sneak around your house and see if you've done anything in the backyard or um, look through the window with binoculars, seeing if you changed any of your countertops. None of those guys were involved. And, and there were no loopholes whatsoever. Weird, but the guy who actually came out to appraise the house was the Corvallis fire chief. They would test the properties by fire. And whatever was left... After the fire, you got to exchange for that place up there in Paradise Heights. Well, both men were born in 1946. And so this was their day to retire. And they were nervous. Bill was especially pretty jittery because he had spent his whole life building a house that could resist any kind of flame. In fact... All the materials used in the entire home, everything was fireproof. Nothing would burn. And then on top of that, just in case something could burn and it couldn't, he had a sprinkler system that didn't just shoot water. It shot the latest and high-tech chemical that would put out any fire under any circumstance, even if it were within the 20 yards of his home. He was ready for this day in his house. Boy, did he build it. It was huge, 8,000 square feet and marble countertops, marble fireplace. It was amazingly 
beautiful, a work of art. And his garage was better than most houses I've seen. In fact, his garage was bigger and much prettier than Wally's house, which was right next door. Wally's house was made out of wood. It had a cheap roof. It was small. It was very simple. It wasn't ugly. And it was actually quite tidy, but in comparison to Bill's house, well, quite frankly, there wasn't any comparison. And Bill, his whole life, complained about that, that Wally's house made his house look bad, especially when Wally let the lawn go green because he didn't, or go brown in the summer because he didn't water it, because he didn't have enough money. Boy, Bill did not like Wally being around. And Wally wasn't nearly as concerned about this day. But both men looked rather sober when the fire truck pulled up. And out stepped the fire chief himself. Took a book of matches, lit the match, and threw it onto Wally's brown lawn. It took about two seconds to reach the house. Once it hit the house, literally, poof, up in smoke, the house was gone and reduced to ashes in all of what took maybe five seconds. And it was funny because Wally didn't seem that sad. And he made some comment like it was just a tool for God or something random. Bill, on the other hand, stood up in confidence. He was ready for this. His lawn was like a golf course. It was green and short and beautiful. And he knew, as I knew watching this, that as soon as the match hit that lawn, it was out. The fire chief steps up, lights the match, throws it on to the green lawn. What kind of fire was this? It was burning right across toward the house. Bill started to yell as though he could stop the fire. And, of course, he couldn't. It kept going closer and closer. And the sprinklers come on. The stuff that can kill any fire didn't kill it. And it hit his house. And the flames were enormous. The black, inky smoke, columns of smoke into the air. It was not unlike the eruption of Mount St. Helens. And it burned for Hours and hours. And the fire jumped over to his garage. And when it did, Bill was shrieking, no, not my cars. He had a collection of really nice cars in there. And he was crying. Everything he had spent his entire life investing in was going down in the flames. And when it was all over, ash. Nothing but ash on both men's estates. Wally sat there reflectively, and Bill stood there crying and stomping around like a big baby. Wally started over to his place and walked into the ash. As he was looking through the ash, he noticed something glitter, shine. And he walked over and bent over. Right there in the ash was this gold nugget. And as he blew on the ashes, there were little gold nuggets everywhere. And he started to think about where this was. And it was right where their dining room table had been, which had served as the center of their family. As he picked up these 
gold nuggets, each one brought a different memory to mind. This one, when they had the missionary over, and the missionary shared the stories of what life was like in China. Wally knew it was that day that his son determined that he would be a missionary, and he was now serving in Mongolia. And other that brought back memories of his daughter's friends and how they sat around the table and how his wife had just loved on those girls and poured her life into them. And all around the table, gold everywhere. He, he went and grabbed a wheelbarrow and just started throwing the gold into it. It was all around the table and each one evoking an amazing memory of something that God had done through their prayers as they prayed around the table and as they invited neighbors and some of them actually not the cleanest of neighbors and as Wally was contemplating Bill was now on his face kicking like a little child as he walked around to what used to be the living room there all over the floor red rubies he started picking them up and putting them into the wheelbarrow tons what are these from and that was the place every night that he would play with his three kids. They would do this thing called tricks for kids. The kids would climb up on daddy's shoulders and he'd flip them off and just countless gems. It, oh my, a huge monster diamond right there where the, that was where the coffee stain was. Stand. Their drunken neighbor had just finally and deservedly been kicked out of the home. It was right there on that couch where he spilled that coffee that night that Stan gave his life to Christ. Stan went on to the rescue mission to go through rehab. And they talked about getting a new carpet, but the son pitched in and says, Dad, let's just give the money that we would spend on that new carpet to the rescue mission. After all, they're getting Stan a new life. And you know what? Stan became like an uncle to Wally's kids. And he finally became a dad to his own. But down here into the den, you've never seen such a colorful assortment of sapphires and topaz and gems. Right where Wally's prayer couch had been. He remembered the prayers that he prayed for Uganda for Mongolia, for China, for all the missionaries. He was so faithful. Gems everywhere. And then out into the garage where his 77 Ford Maverick had melted in intense heat. Right there in the middle was a big old gem. They talked about getting a new car often. Every time they talked about it, something would come up. A missionary would need extra money to go overseas and well, there goes the car payment. And besides, Wally was great at working on cars. That baby had 360,000 on it. And he was so great at working at cars. There were a bunch of gems over here. That's where he used to do the work on all the, the widows and the single moms on the block. And it soon wasn't the block. It was actually grew into like the whole half of the city because they knew Wally would fix their car on one condition. If they didn't mind listening to him tell them about Jesus. Well, they didn't mind. 
seven diamonds of women and their children who gave their life to Jesus. And if Wally wasn't so absorbed in thought, he could have heard Bill crying, wailing and lamenting his total and absolute love. Well, Wally's wheelbarrow was full and he pushed it on up the hill to Paradise Heights and came to the gate. And it was a gated community. And there was the gatekeeper. Wally, we've been waiting for you. Come on in. Wally, well done. We have the biggest and most beautiful place. Last house up on the right. It's all yours. Here are your keys. Well, there was no wheelbarrow for Bill. He went up with a pocket full of a few copper coins that he found in the one spot where he very begrudgingly and very sporadically wrote that cursed tithe check to the church. And handing them his few coins, they said, Welcome, Bill. We're glad you're here. You're going to have the place right next to Wally. Well, great. I guess I'm used to it. I guess I can take it for a few more years. Where are my keys? Oh, you won't need any keys. Wally never locked his doors. You've been given an exact replica of his house. Coffee stain and all. Hey, enjoy. It's a weird dream. I don't know why I had it unless... Yeah. Maybe God wants me to join those presidential debates. Awesome story. Where's your mission speaker? (laughs) Well, one thing about Jonathan is it's nice to see him feel so comfortable so quickly (laughs) in our church. And and being a dreamer, that was he probably fits in pretty well here. Um, So. Jonathan Martin is our speaker this morning. That guy? Yeah, that's the same guy there. Yeah, yeah. He'll look a little bit better when he comes back on stage, I think. Um, although the I thought he looked good. The pajamas were. Yeah, that was a nice. That was a nice. There's a story behind that, right? So Jonathan's here with his his wife Janie, and he's brought some friends along with him, his uh, entourage or whatever. Uh, so to to join us this morning, and uh, Jonathan is the uh, global outreach and local outreach. Uh, pastor at Good Shepherd Community Church up in Boring, the town. <laughs> and, uh, and he's been uh, uh, working, uh, he's, they've been missionaries to China. He has been uh, prior to that. And they have been a church that has really been devoted to sending and um, to be devoted to, to outreach in either both locally and globally. You'll hear more about that. He's been involved in um, the, uh, with Dr. Val in Karamoja. He's been training pastors, uh, the, the Karamojang pastors that are there, and uh, he has a ministry there, um, and he's touched a lot of lives. He works with us, the, the churches that get together, to discuss and to kind of help coordinate Dr. Val's uh, needs in Karamoja. He's uh, one of the, um, the people involved in that committee, the, the Clyde advocacy team that we, uh, Steve Binney and I are a part of. So, um, and he has um, a great... A great opportunity. I don't know exactly how to say this, but you'll really enjoy the next time with him. 
All right. Thanks, Brian. Okay, so this is a guy that's worth listening to. We're going to prepare ourselves in two ways. First of all, by uh, remembering uh, we came as individuals, but we're here all together as a family. And so let's make sure we meet the family around us this morning. And we'll be singing a song to God that uh, prepares us to hear what else we need to learn from uh, Jonathan today. Okay, so stand up, turn around, meet a couple of new people. Let's go. Get moving. Anyway, sorry to disappoint you. I had to go change out of those jammies. Um, my friend Nick gave me those leopard jammies. And I said I was going to preach in them one day, and he didn't believe me. So I said, come down and watch. So anyway, he, he's now a believer. So um, Anyway, I love those things. They're the only jammies I've ever worn ever since I've been married. Now I wear them all over the house. And thank you for a very well-placed gift. Hey, it's really good to be here. It's been a privilege to get to know this church through your leadership. And I came down at Perspectives and have also been involved with uh, a team partially represented from your church with Dr. Val, and so that's how we've gotten to know each other, and it's really fun to be able to be here. Hey, today we're going to talk about what I think is one of the most important verses in the Scriptures. And everybody in this church should memorize this verse, okay? And it is the verse, and see who can tell me where it is. It's the verse that we refer to and call it the Great Commission. Where is the Great Commission? Matthew. Okay, close. Yeah. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. That's right. So you're right. So it's the end of Matthew, and it is Jesus, right at the end of the book, he takes his disciples up on the hill, and he commissions them. Now, if you think about it, at the end of Jesus, before he went to be back with the Father, what he's telling these men is important. Very, very important. And he commissions them. And here's how he commissions them. He says, first of all, all authority has been given to me. How much authority? Yeah, and in case he wasn't clear enough, he says, under heaven and earth. So in other words, in heaven and earth, all authority, that's pretty much sums it up, has been given to me. And then he charges his men. In other words, hey, I'm the commander in chief and I am commissioning you. And he says to his men, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples of all nations. And then he breaks it up into two parts, and he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, getting them going in their journey of faith. And then, he says, teaching them to obey, to observe. Not just teaching them everything I commanded, but teaching them to obey everything I commanded. And then he ends by saying, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, is that for his disciples or is that for you? A lot of people, I wish it were just for his disciples, personally. And they're on the hook and I'm off. But here's what he says to his disciples. He says, make disciples of all nations. And at the very end, so he's telling his disciples, that's a command, right? Teaching your disciples to obey everything I've commanded you. And what did he just command them? You're not off the hook, are you? You're on. You're one of the disciples, teaching your disciples to obey everything Jesus had commanded. So you are a disciple, and you are on the hook, and we are all called to be making disciples of all nations. You're called not just to be a local Christian. You are called to be a local Christian and an incredibly effective one. But you are called to be a world Christian and to impact the ends of the earth. 
And there are ways that all of us are called to be involved in doing that. Is this the first time in the Great Commission? Does it, does it just pop up out of the blue at the end of Matthew and we not hear anything else about it? Or is it in the, anywhere else in the Bible? In the book of Revelation, every tribe, tongue, and nation. The book of Daniel, every tribe, tongue, and nation. To Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed. To Isaac, again, all, through you all nations will be blessed. We see this theme all the way through. But where is the first time we see the Great Commission? And he said Matthew, but there's actually an earlier time. Where is the first time we see it in the Scriptures? Okay, that's what I thought too, because I just taught on it a few weeks that go actually a few months ago at my church and that's where I started at Abraham but I realized I went back and started reading at the beginning of the Bible and I realized oh my word it's there in the very first chapter open real quickly to Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 as you're turning there let me ask you the question have you guys ever noticed how the Bible makes use and it's really couched all the way from cover to cover in warfare terms you know, the war against Satan in the book of Revelation. We got Paul talking about spiritual warfare. We have the whole Old Testament, which is what? Warfare. So we have this ongoing war theme in the scriptures. And I wonder why. Maybe because we're in a war. What do you think? But look in Genesis 1.28. And this really is the first great commission. And listen to what it says. It always helps to be on the right page. It also helps to be able to see. Okay, here we go. God blessed them. That's Adam and Eve in the garden. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over all living creatures that move on the ground. So they were commanded to what? Fill the earth. With what? Well, at that point, Adam and Eve hadn't fallen to fill the earth with goodness, with the image of God, bearing his image to take God out and to fill the earth with that which is good. Now, here's a question for you. The Garden of Eden, um, I ask this to a lot of different Christian circles, and I'll ask it to you. Rank the Garden of Eden. Ready? Most Christians all across the nation would have the same answer. And so what answer is that? The Garden of Eden was good. The Garden of Eden was very good. Or the Garden of Eden was perfect. What would most Christians say? So that way it's not you answering. It's somebody else and you're safe. Uh So what would you say? Most people, perfect, right? Perfect. Okay, and it's interesting because here from the Garden of Eden... God is commanding them to go out and and subdue the earth. And I'll talk about that word for a second. Subdue the earth, the word subdue, is a warfare term. Don't you find that interesting? You're there in the garden, there's no sin, and you have this warfare term. And I looked at it and I go, wait a second, is it really a warfare term? So I found out all nine places in the Old Testament where it's used. And each time it's, hey, the promised land, go in and subdue the land. Take it from the Canaanites. You got the Philistines, subdue the land of the Philistines, subdue these people. It means to take it over, to grab a hold of it. This is your calling. And now, 
we hear the Garden of Eden is this perfect place. But as a kid, I had a, a question. If the Garden of Eden is this perfect place, what in the heck is Satan doing there? You ever scratch your head on that one? How perfect could that be? Now, let's say you had the perfect home. You have oak floors, you know, heating that comes up through the, the oak floors. You've got your marble countertops. You've got a place just like Bill's. Um, you've got this beautiful, immaculate place, but there's just one small problem with it. Down in the living room, there is a rabid, demon-possessed lion. Okay, perfect place. I think suddenly we change our tune. Now, the Garden of Eden was perfect in this way. Were all of Adam's needs met? He had the relationship with God. He walked and talked in the cool of the night. He had a companion, Eve, and what a wife she was. I mean, almost, not quite as good as my own. An amazing woman. So his relational needs, his sexual needs... Um, all the food he could want or eat, right? So all of his physical needs and clothing needs, were they met? Ha-ha, you don't need it because perfect climate control, 74 degrees all year round. <laughs> so everything taken care of for him. And yet he was told one thing. What did God tell him? Hey, eat of everything. This is your place except one thing. Hey, God wasn't even kind enough. Oh, by the way, Adam, Satan, the most evil creature ever imaginable, is lurking in the garden. Beware of him. Didn't say that. Because he didn't need to say that. You obey the commander-in-chief, and he will be pushed out. He will be pushed back. And what did Adam do? Disobey. You see, we often refer to this Garden of Eden as being the perfect place and the place we want to get back to. But guess what? 128 says they weren't even supposed to stay there in the first place. They were supposed to leave and fill the earth. So was there a competition for the earth? Well, guess what? Who is the prince of the power of the air and who is the present ruler of this world? It is Satan. So there was a battle from the very beginning, and guess who won? Not only did he win, but guess what we did as humans? We defected and jumped on his side. See, in a way, Eden, as beautiful and as perfect as it was, was the first great battlefield, and humanity lost. No longer could we take the image of God in his goodness and kindness to the ends of the earth because we had sided with the enemy. Now, let's go forward. The next Adam comes on the scene. The second Adam, as the Bible refers to him, who is Jesus. And the first thing he does ministry-wise, the first thing, what is it? He's baptized, so that's the beginning of his earthly ministry. What's the first, where does he go? To the The wilderness. Okay, so here you have Adam in the garden with all of his needs met. Now you have Jesus in the wilderness, the desert, not exactly a garden. Needs met? Forty days without 
food in the hot sun, probably ill-clothed by that time. Any companionship? He's alone. Only God. And Satan, the great tempter, comes and says, join forces with me. And isn't it beautiful? Aren't you you thankful for Jesus who stood against the evil one with Scripture, with God's word? And what happened to the evil one? He left him. See, when we obey the commander in chief, the evil one, the darkness flees and light comes in. And then his ministry was launched. And there was one other amazing time of temptation that Christ faced. And what was that? I think even more intense in many ways, than the wilderness experience. And where was that? The the garden. We're back to the garden. The first garden where man obeyed and said, not your will, but mine be done. And here Christ, wanting more than anything, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Not wanting to be separated from his Father. The physical death and the torment and the shame of hanging naked on a cross, that was enough. But more than that, he did not want to be separated from his Father. And yet, all of history hinges on those words. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And there was victory in the garden, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus, who was elevated to the place of commander-in-chief. All authority has been given to me. And then he commissions you. And he says, what we failed the first time going to the ends of the earth, it's now your task. I give it to you. You guys realize what a calling that is? It's amazing what we are called to as Christ's disciples. And that is to take the restored image of God to the ends of the earth to to destroy, as it says in 1 John, to destroy the works of Satan. Paul is very clear. We are in a spiritual battle. And who is our battle against? Each other? Political? Who is it again? We battle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of the evil kingdom. Against Satan. That is who the war is against. Mankind, from the very beginning, was called to go. And to go to war and push darkness out of this world. And that's what we're called to. But there remains a theology that's out there. I even heard a song about it. And the song was, I want to go back to Eden. Right? Don't we all want to go back to Eden? I mean, and because it was so good there. We had this great relationship before we sinned. And, and we did have a great relationship before we sinned. It was, it was all great. But do we really want to go back to that place where God had commissioned them to leave in the first place? Why? And we spend our whole life fleeing from danger. You know, Benson High School in the Portland area, um, some of you are familiar with it. I was talking to a a friend. He's in his 60s now. And when he was young, they had a Youth for Christ event there. And do you know how many kids showed up? A thousand. Isn't that amazing? Do you realize I have a friend who's a Christian who goes down into there and he's out on that high school campus every day, and there's only one other Christian on the entire staff of the high school. Okay, why? We fled. 
we as Christians are in retreat. I am. I mean, I, I admit. I mean, I live to. I move to a place hey, where uh, my kids would be safe. They wouldn't get shot. Of course, now what's happening at that school? You see what I'm saying? The very school you flee to, also Satan comes and takes over. See, we are not called to retreat to Helm's Gate for those Lord of the Rings fans. We are called to fight. We are called not only to fight, but to go, not only to our neighborhoods, but to go to the ends of the earth, not to retreat and hold up, hurry up and come back. Jesus. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't retreat? How many of you are glad Jesus didn't retreat? Okay. And what did he do? And this is the way I describe it. Jesus literally stepped down into hell, which is shame. And sin and guilt, our same sin and guilt. And he took it upon himself and was buried by it. So he stepped into our pain, our guilt and our shame, took it upon himself, and God gloriously raised him. And then Jesus calls us to be different than him or to follow him. Okay, which means he calls us into the hell of other people's lives to snatch them out. And if we're retreating, trying to get back to Eden, do you think we're going to be willing to do that? If we're looking for a pain-free existence, do you think we're going to do that? I mean, we live in a culture that is the... I mean, we flee pain like you couldn't believe. We even our little babies. They start crying, here's some Tylenol, baby. Why? Not really for the baby's pain, but for mama's pain, you know. Um, and so we grow up hating pain because we never have to endure it. And then someone, God calls us into other people's pain? I don't think so. When he is. And he's saying, why would, you, why would anybody want to step into other people's pain? Last service, Dr. Val was sitting right here. She might be in here right now too, but she was right there. And I tell her story often. Here's a woman that for 13 years, now it's been 15, but for 13 years, she moved into what were called the demon people of the valley. And do you know what life was like for her those 13 years? She actually couldn't tell her home churches because they would bring her home. She reported nice little stories about a grandma who received Christ, but she didn't report, report the warfare and the bullets that were going. She would lay down on her floor so she wouldn't get with the cement walls, so she wouldn't get hit and go out in the morning and pick up her friends. When I was there visiting her, um, one of her pets, who she becomes very attached to because, as you guys know, um, they're her friends. They're her companions. One of her, her monkey died while I was there. And I had just been at a funeral, not a funeral. I went to the graveside of the chief who had helped found the peace process. He had been executed. And I watched her just weep tears over his grave. And when I walked up to her, I said, Val, I'm so sorry that you're here after the monkey died, that your monkey died. And she just started bawling. She says, it's so hard to be in a place where everything you love dies. And I've asked her, how do you stay here? She goes, well, because I know God's going to do something. Thirteen years of warfare and fighting, and one out of three people in Karamoja died of gunshot wounds until just a few years ago. And what happened a few years ago? That one thing Val knew was going to come. She stepped into literally hell on earth because she knew God was calling her there. And do you know what's surprising about this? 
Yeah, I saw her cry, but what you're, what's surprising is when you step into other people's pain and suffering, guess what you were surprised by? Joy. God gives you a joy, and you can even ask Val this, a joy that is greater than anything you can ever imagine because it comes from God and not from circumstances. It comes from who he is. And you see people's lives be changed, and you go, I would not have it any other way. Okay, I grew up in a Christian home. I don't know about you guys, but I grew up, age three, prayed to receive Jesus. Radical life transformation at that time. Um, I grew up, okay, there are a lot of fears that people have. One of the, say, humans' greatest fears is speaking in public, right? That was not mine. Do you know what my greatest fear was? Talking to anybody about Jesus. Oh, the thought of it scared me so bad. And I had this one friend in my life that, that uh, it, it, well, actually, here was my idea of doing good and being a good deed doer and pushing back the forces of darkness. I was at a football game and had a friend named Tim, and he was drunk off of his rocker. And I lived in the mountains in Southern California, way up at 6,000 feet. Our high school sat right on the precarious edge of these mountains overlooking the valley and the city lights at night. And to drive down the rim of the world highway, as it's called, you could drive right off that and kill yourself. There were a lot of cars that were down there. We loved to look down thousands of feet at the smashed cars and wonder, what poor soul went down there with that? Um, But Tim was drunk, and he was going to drive home, and it was foggy that night after the football game. And being the good, loving person that I am, let's save Tim's life. And so we went found his car in the parking lot. There it is. He's drunk. He shouldn't be driving. So we let the air out of all four tires. Good Christian deed of the night. <laughs> Sunk it all the way down to the rims so he would not drive home. But evidently I didn't realize how drunk Tim was because he drove home anyway and didn't notice, unbelievably, until the next morning when his parents gave him a, what did you do? I mean, everything was ruined. They were shredded. He was on the rims all the way home. Um, so that was my idea of good deed doing. But there was a man who loved me enough to say, hey, I'm not going to settle for that. And he was our Bible study leader. His name was Dean Gray. And do you know what he did? He taught us how to share our faith. Okay. Number one, terror. And, um, and I thought, that's great in theory. Okay. But then Dean says, okay, tomorrow at school or Tuesday at school, I think this is on a Saturday, Tuesday at school, I want you to invite a friend to come home with us, and we will share the gospel message with them. Okay. I quickly did everything I could to forget what he had just said, so I would have an excuse come Tuesday that I had forgotten. So he shows up at school after, after track practice. He comes up and, and says, Oh, John, did you get somebody for us to, to take home? Oh, I forgot. Now, I can't really remember if I was just lying or if I'd really forgotten. Probably was lying. But... Um, what a good Christian boy I was. But I conveniently had forgotten to invite anybody. But right as I was coming up with this lame excuse, a guy walks up and says, John, can I get a ride home? <laughs> and I said, why do you need a ride home? He says, well, last Friday night I drove home on my rims. And my parents have grounded me and I can't drive for the next two weeks. Can you take me home? And it was Tim. Okay. I go, well, sure, hop in. And all the way home, I just butterflies bubbling and Dean is going to share Christ with my friend and I'm going to be guilty by association. And, um, Oh, this is 
I was so sick. And then we pull up to the driveway. I remember exactly where we were sitting, and I'm in the back with Tim, and I'm ready for Dean to do his good deed. And Dean goes, Tim. And Tim goes, what? Jonathan has something he wants to share with you. (laughs) Oh, man. Just to disappear at that moment. So I took this little booklet, and I was a brilliant evangelist. I read the booklet. Isn't that brilliant? Just read it word for word and turn the pages. And Tim is really listening intently. And at the end of the booklet, it talks about two kinds of lives. One is the self-directed life, which is the life Adam and Eve chose to do it themselves. And one is the Christ God-directed life. And asked with my brilliant question asking by reading a question, Tim, which one of these do you represent, I mean, represent your life? And he goes, oh, the self-directed one. My life is a mess right now. And the next question, which one do you want to represent your life? And he said, the one where Christ is in the center. I was shocked. What do you do now? Turn the page. (laughs) And right there in my car, Tim asked Jesus to come into his life. Okay. And the next year, he went off to college. Next year, he had gotten involved in a college group on campus and was really doing well in his faith. And I haven't seen him since. But I went home absolutely floating as though this is what I was created to do. What? Lie and all that? You know, no. To share my faith. And he came to faith in Christ because I read a book. And it was amazing. I mean, what glory do I get? None. But God just lifted me up and the joy was so intense. I went home to my mom. I said, Mom, Tim, pray to receive Christ with me. And she goes, it's the greatest feeling in the world, isn't it? How do you know? Well, she'd been tricked into sharing her faith by some people too. Um, Okay, but isn't that the way it is? We're terrified to do the very thing we were created to do in the first place, and that's to push back the enemy. Do you remember Jesus, before his great commission, he had a little commission. Do you remember what the little commission was? He commissioned his disciples, the 70, to go out. And he told them, he gave them a great pep talk, something to never use for your football team. Because he says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Thank you, Jesus. That's really encouraging. You see, he realized they're going out into Satan's territory. When I shared my faith, you know why I was so paralyzed by fear? I was stepping into the enemy's realm, his domain. There should be fear. Am I still afraid to share my faith? Yet, you know, every time there's something there. Well, you should be. You're stepping out in faith into the enemy's territory. So his disciples, then Jesus, his pep talk, and you're already lambs, but don't take any protection. Don't take any money belt. Don't take anything. It's total dependence upon Jesus. So they go out there, and what happens? They come back rejoicing at what God had done during that time. Absolutely rejoicing. They say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus stands there and says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Do you see whose turf they were just penetrating? Every time you share your faith, you are penetrating the enemy's turf in huge, huge ways. That's why you pray for your missionaries. Do you realize my cousin right now is in the hospital? He's in a Muslim people group out in Central Asia. 
with some strange disease. He's on the enemy's turf. And when you don't pray for your missionaries, you're leaving them so vulnerable. Because prayer is what God uses. Look at that spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians. It's pray, 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 pray. And pray that I would have boldness. That was Paul's final prayer in there. To proclaim the gospel. So the church today, we've been commissioned. But I really think the church largely is out of commission. Because we're fleeing. And we're retreating. And we're saying, Jesus, come quickly. Instead of aggressively going after the entire world. You know, every Christian is called to be a world Christian. You know Coca-Cola? You know what their goal was? To get their product everywhere in the world. And have they succeeded? I don't know. But all I know is this. is We were driving late one night. We got stuck with flat tires, driving through Karamoja, pulled into this village with no lights. The one restaurant there serves really sinewy chicken and rice. That's all they have. And they go kill the chicken out back while you're there. little candle burning inside. So we have rice, chicken, and Coca-Cola. They had done it. Their goal was achieved. And yet we as Christians, will we ever reach the world if we're retreating, if we're not willing to step into people's pain, if we're seeking comfort over the fact that God tells us to take territory? And that means pain. So is your church out of commission? You know, it's glorious that you have taken this whole month to look at the needs around the world. We're we're poisoned in an unusual way to to know about the world and to be giving to the world and be sending people into the world. And your church is taking an entire month to say, let's get with the main program. But a lot of churches, you know, it's about relationship, right? It is. It's about a relationship with God. Absolutely. But it's about a relationship and a mission. And those two go hand in hand. You know why churches fight so much sometimes and there's so, many inter- so much internal fighting? It's because Christians were created for warfare. It's either against the devil or against each other. And I think so much of that's true. When we're on mission, when we're commissioned and doing what we're called to, we have to, like a band of brothers, bind together and move out and take territory. That's what we're called to do. That's what the church is called to do. Here's another question. Is your family out of commission? Do you pray for missionaries? Do you pray for the world's needs? You know, one of the best things you can do as a family, I'm convinced, is as a family say, you know what? This couple's going out on the mission field. Let's get behind them in every way. Let's support them financially. Why is that important? Well, first of all, to get them onto the battlefield. Did we make sacrifices during World War II? You bet we did. So we sacrificed to get them onto the battlefield, and then we pray, which is doing warfare, for them regularly, and they become our family, or that becomes our couple, or that becomes our single. She becomes our child. And we will own her like a child, and we will pray for her, and when she's home, we'll have her over, and we will, we will get behind our missionaries. That is what a church is called to. That's your family. It's one of the best ways. You wonder how you can give money and make it count? Well, given the relationship with somebody you trust and somebody you know who's taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, it's such a great investment. Know a missionary or maybe two families and get involved. 
So is your church out of commission? Are you, is your family out of commission? You know, your kids are watching. You, they say, well, you believe the gospel, that people who don't know Christ go into a Christless eternity. But my parents never even seem to give a rip about people who've never heard and will never have a chance to hurt here unless they do something. They don't even pray for them. See, kids see out-of-commission parents. We do. So get on task, on commission. Know who you're praying for and know the countries that you're about. And get with it. Last one, are you out of commission? And honestly, I have to say, um, I so often am. My brother a long time ago asked this question as he was teaching in front of a church. He asked, and I was so convicted, he said this. When was the last time you shed a tear for those who never have had the chance to hear the gospel and who never will unless things change? And as I was sitting in the back, it was the first time I'd ever shed a tear for that. And it was not really for them. It was because of my guilt. How can I say, thank you, Jesus, for all you've given me, but I don't care about the Buddhist who's never heard. So I even have to ask myself that question. When was the last time? God calls us to care. He calls us to care deeply. He even says, blessed are those who mourn, for you shall be comforted. And we mourn when we step into other people's pain and their lost condition. That's the life he calls us to. There'll be retirement on the other side. But not now. So let's be about being on task, on being on commission. Start by going and memorizing the Great Commission. And even start now by saying, God, how do you want me to be involved? And so don't leave today without saying, in fact, bow your heads with me and I'm going to close in prayer. Just ask God, God, how do you want me to be involved? It may be someone down the street, a neighbor that you have not gotten to know, that you can begin to pray for and pray with and get to know them in hopes of sharing the gospel. Maybe just learning how to share the gospel. It may be Adopting a missionary family. It may be learning to give faithfully so the church can do what it's called to do, and that's push back the forces of darkness. Ask God what he has for you. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your great commission. God, you've called us to be ambassadors and to be fighting against the enemy. In fact, God, in Romans, at the end, you say that we are the ones who will finally have the victory over Satan and his head will be crushed under our feet, the feet of the church. And we thank you for esteeming us, making us holy warriors, and giving us something to truly live and die for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.